Hi, I'm Sarah McConnell, and this is With Good Reason. Almost all of us eventually face the sadness and anxiety of seeing our parents' age, and along with it, the realization that our own turn is next. Today, we'll speak with a poet whose latest book includes a tribute and farewell to his elderly parents. Later in the show, bringing to life musical works by the great American composers that have never been heard before. But first, the new poetry collection of Tim Siebel's called One Turn Around the Sun includes odes to his parents and attempts to define the first appearances of the twilight of life. Siebel's is the Poet Laureate of Virginia and a professor of English at Old Dominion University. Tim, your wonderful new book is many things, and one is that it is a tribute and a farewell to your aging parents. Yes, to the extent that it's possible. I've grown accustomed to seeing them ill, and still, whenever I go home, it shocks and disorients me. I think they both are bewildered by what they're experiencing. You begin with a poem that's really an exuberant exploration of the very beginnings of life inside our mothers. Would you read that? I would be glad to. Ode to your mother. Do you remember yourself six months after conception? Far from the egg, your heart chirping like a hungry chick. Those unwalked feet, fat crickets kicking around, eyes blind as buttons, cell by cell, rod by cone, getting ready to call up the colors and lights. And your mother, often craving licorice with apple pie, outside catching a bus with you in her warm pond, a golden koi nosing the surface for bits of bread. You, the unnamed stranger, coming for the long stay, traveling all night, your face taking shape in the shadows. Or maybe she sees herself, a bass drum with something booming inside her, a small theater off-Broadway with someone soon to be famous pacing the wing. So much promise. Were you restless to begin? All your vitals rehearsing their hard parts. Did you have any sense that she was out there? Your brain almost building itself. A secret mansion. A million doors to a million rooms. Each with a candle. Your little head holding the Milky Way rekindled in miniature, consciousness, the great mischief, waking up to try again, one particular flicker in the cosmic sea, a starfish riding the big back of a blue whale which swims like a planet, gliding the sun's slow waves with you, beginning to insist Inside this woman you hardly know, though she is everything, steadying her new weight 
on earth. Your heart, blind as a kite, wind on the rise, three months from day. Did you suppose an inkling of what would be out there, the invisible air filling us up, rabbits in hats, hints, houses, banana slugs, bacteria, and trees, other people, the look on your face, already amazed, or whatever comes just before that. Such a wonderful, poetic kiss to birth, life, and motherhood. Well, I, I was doing my best. <laughs> your second poem in the book is called Ode to Your Father, and this is very different, very much a sketch of who he is. Yes. Would you read that? Okay. Ode to Your Father. So Sunday nights, he put on Yusef Latif, and that flute stole secrets, usually locked in the moon's cool house, and you watched his head nod yes to all he couldn't say, then tiptoed back to TV, hoping he'd forget it was past your time for bed. When he yelled at you, you probably heard his father yelling at him, though you couldn't recognize the flat, don't talk back, settled beneath his voice like a big bass at the bottom of a lake. Growing up, he said yes, sir, to that brassy baritone, and wasn't his father's father's voice a part of him too? That part that seemed tied up in some long-ago trouble, even when he sat in the shade, baiting a hook. Hard to picture it now, him in his straw hat and high-water dungarees, Oklahoma boy moping home with a loaf of bread, his buddies teasing and tempting him back to the park. How did he face his first bully, the one that cracked his tooth and cut his arm. Ever wonder where he got that hot grease-in-the-face glare, the look that made you so afraid? His father made him fight that tough kid twice. And at times, didn't the whole country try to break his skin, waiting for him on every corner like a bully? What? did he make of all those stores that wouldn't let him in? He worked the slaughterhouse, stiff with dry blood. His overalls could stand by themselves. In spite of this, you found him years later, your pop mopping the kitchen, whistling My Satin Doll, a tune you hadn't heard so half-listened as if he was some odd station on the radio. And when he'd start the old, things were different back then. It sounded like once upon a time. You shrugged and secretly rolled your eyes. But half of you is still made of him, his long arms, his love of hats, your solitary heart, half jazz half ready to fight. 
Your father didn't kiss you like your mother did, but every October he drove you to the Arboretum to see the blood orange leaves, even when he had a lot on his mind. That mind you'll never see inside, though you know it's packed with good songs, some hard feelings, and all the stuff he will not say. You remember him whistling Satin Dull? Oh, of course. Many times in the mornings, you would hear him whistling as he was dressing and, and getting himself together before work. So, yeah, yeah, I do remember very, very distinctly. So much of this book, you are struggling to reconcile the youthful you and the aging you. Mm-hmm. I'm older than my father was when he retired. He began to look more carefully and more honestly at life, and not only in terms of your own parents and mortality, but in terms of how the entire society operates and how do we treat death and mortality and how do we speak about our lives? What are the things that, that seem to be true about living that virtually never are spoken of? And to, my, and to the extent that I can see myself, I see qualities of both of them. Uh, my mother was very energetic and liked to laugh and play and, and, and be social. And my father was very much a loner, much more interested in solitude and kind of introspection. And I feel both of those things in operation in my mind. And, and so, you know, the other thing that, that begins to happen, I think, as you get to the age I am, uh, is you begin to say, wow, you know, I owe an immense debt to my parents, uh, will I ever be able to have a clear grasp of how much they've done for me or, or what parts of me are completely beholden to their efforts? And the answer is no. So I remain to some extent a mystery <laughs> to myself. And then looking at my parents, they also remain kind of, you know, impenetrable figures um, uh, in a way. There's another poem I'd love you to read that delves richly into your memories of your carefree youth, but now trying to make sense of aging. We don't have time for all of it, but would you please read the first portion of At 59? The poem At 59 has an epigraph. Um, it says, after Randall Jarrell. And so he writes this poem, this meditation on aging. So this poem is derived from that poem. His poem begins in a grocery store. My poem begins in a, in a sporting goods store. At 59, roving from Nike to New Balance, Prince to Puma, I pick up a pair of size 13s, some shorts and blue sweats, still feeling the sneakered beast scuff his muzzle against my skull. Two tall, hard-shouldered young brothers Fondle Air Jordans, talking a little crap. If I get you down on the block with these, brothers will be calling you Betty. A drowning man, Muji wrote, is not interested in air. And as the few stars that pardoned my life burn down, I recognize this snag in my chest, this cut breath, this lonely late midlife knowing 
the inescapable all around me, desperation all around, my own stumbly efforts at love, my own trying to say, say something, while the duck speakers salute their zombie platoons. Always big bad death posting me up, backing me down, the ball's trick bounce busting my brain. I know he's smooth with either hand, but still mean to snuff his shot. In my college days, when my parents were well and the bulk of worry sat elsewhere, I strolled around with my boys, and mostly we wanted the same things, to play sports, make big bucks, and have the fine babes find the come-hither in our faces. What I miss is that damn sure hell yeah we carried like crisp cash. J.C., his wit, that manic laugh, Eric's slick grin, and Doc, so thin only his head cast shadow, that loud halo of hair. Don't touch the fro, he'd say. I miss my boys and the Ohio players funkin' us up against the earth's black hips. You were bad, bad misses with those skin-tight britches running folks into ditches, yeah. We couldn't help ourselves. There's a girl, a young woman, I guess, in her mid-twenties, testing the exercise machines, a serious athlete wearing sneaks that mean speed, her righteous gluteus maximus rippling each lift and pull. What I wish, now that I'm older, is that she see through the three decades between us and work my back. But these days, I'm a sir, a graybeard to be addressed with deference. Someone whose wisdom could maybe be vaguely revered. O oh, sex, songbook of our better angels, how I craved and savored your generous pages, chapter and verse and verse, kissing for hours, daylight lost to the liquid velvet of the tongue, the body, delicious synagogue, cello, hungry to be bowed. Oh, that's so wonderful. I wish we had time also for the rest of it. Let me ask you this. Since you've been named Poet Laureate of Virginia, have you felt more of a burden, more of a responsibility to be a certain way? Um, with, with the kind of media attention that I have gotten over the last several months, it allows me to be a, a more um, public ambassador for, for poems. Um, and so I, my part of my thing is to talk about like matters of the heart. Because if, there, if, if the emotion is unimportant, then there shouldn't be art. But the fact is, feeling drives our lives. <laughs> and that's what it does. But, but we're still, at least it strikes me anyway, in this country, in denial about the, the centrality of emotion in our lives. 
when we try to deny the primacy of what we feel. If you're listening to what you feel, you can make better choices about how to proceed, you know. So true. Tim Siebels, thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. A pleasure is all mine, Sarah. Thank you. And to close out, we said we'd play a song your father loved. Yes. Um, trying to Make It Real Compared to What? by the Les McCann Trio. He did it now. Trying to make it real compared to what? Tim Siebels is a professor of English at Old Dominion University. His latest book of poetry is called One Turn Around the Sun. Coming up next, Unearthing America's Musical Treasures. My next guest is a kind of musical Indiana Jones. He's pursuing the holy grail of American symphony music, long-lost works by master composers that are housed in the Library of Congress. Kevin Bartram is the director of orchestra at the University of Mary Washington. He and several colleagues are finding gems in the Library of Congress that are not only unknown to the public, but have possibly never been heard. I didn't realize the Library of Congress keeps scores of orchestral compositions. Library of Congress is the largest library in the world. The music division alone, 25 million holdings and growing every day, with several truckloads more coming in every day. And indeed, when we were talking with the staff at the Library of Congress, when we first talked about this project, they literally laughed at me. (laughs) Kevin, do you realize we have 25 million holdings? You probably need to narrow the field a little bit. Okay, I asked, well, can we narrow it down to American music? Great. They laughed again. (laughs) We're we're now down to 10 million holdings. Then I said, how about symphony or symphonic music by American composers? And they said, well, probably now down to a mere 1.5 million. So you are not sitting cross-legged on the floor going through piles of boxes that have not yet been cataloged. They won't allow that, no. no. They will bring you whatever it is you ask for. But you have to know what you're looking for in the first place. So I asked the research librarian, who happens to be um, one of the senior musicologists there, Loris Schissel. I said, Loris, can you tell me what the oldest piece of American symphonic music is in the Library of Congress? And he thought about it for a moment. Oh, sure, Anthony Philip Heinrich. And he said, you're probably looking for the Kent Bugle Concerto, and I believe it's 1834. And he said, oh, and here's the call number off the top of his head. Really? So I left his office and I went in and I put that call number in. And several minutes later, voila, the score appears. It was the manuscript. So it was the original version appeared of the Anthony Philip Heinrich concerto. I tell you that it's an emotional experience for me personally when I'm sitting at a table, the rare book section, and they bring out a score that I know for a fact has not been seen in well over a century by a composer that in his day was very important. So I tell you, and I've told some of my colleagues this, that sometimes alone in the library, these composers start speaking to you. 
and the, the notes start leaping out and you start hearing the composer. These are non-recorded pieces that have not been performed in many decades, if not longer. But we do have other works that have been performed and recorded by Anthony Philip Heinrich. And here is one. This is a, a little excerpt from the Manitou Mysteries. And in it, you will hear an emerging orchestra with a full orchestra setting with all the winds, percussion, and strings that we are now used to, but in a very early, one of the earliest settings of a full orchestra in America, written in, of all places, Kentucky. Listen to the lush romantic melodies, this use of color, this use of timbre, the, the woodwind solos, the brass solos, and it's so folksy. It's so, it, it, you can almost hear nature just bubbling. thumbing through some early pieces by one of my heroes and a man that I met several times, Leonard Bernstein. And uh, I had studied conducting a little bit briefly with him in my youth, and he was a major influence on my decision to become a conductor. So I was intrigued. Do we have anything in the Library of Congress from his early days? We did find a piece that he wrote when he was at Harvard, turned out to be the first orchestral piece that he wrote and the first piece that he ever conducted. And it's unknown. There are several parts of this that are reminiscent of very well-known pieces that he would later write, including West Side Story. So here's a little bit of tonight from West Side Story, and you hear glimpses of that emerging from the score when he was 21 years old and a Harvard student's writing this piece that he called The Birds. Now, if you really listen to the background of this, that syncopated active rhythm, which is what Bernstein later became known for, you hear that rhythm in parts of The Birds. Tonight, tonight, it all began tonight. I saw you and the world went I know now I was right. So there's other parts of West Side Story, Something's Coming. You hear a little bit of that as well. Ironic, isn't it? Something's Coming. But this is all 25 years before the fact, or in some cases 30 or more years before the fact. But it was all there bubbling as a 21-year-old college student. Would he have done this for his school? This would have been for the Harvard Orchestra? 
This this was for a of all things, it was for a student project. Let me give you just one more example of a gem that we found and we didn't expect to find because one of the great American composers of all time, Aaron Copland. There's no possible way in which we were going to find something new by Aaron Copland. Well, guess what? We found something new by Aaron Copland. It happened to be a piece that he was writing in his 20s when he was a student in Paris by the great composition teacher Nadia Boulanger. He first wrote a piece called the Passacaglia for piano, but then he took that same piano work and then he scored it for full symphony orchestra. That only exists in the manuscript form with his handwritten notes in the Library of Congress. And here is an example of the piano work. orchestral music surviving? Is it alive and well? Like almost all forms of live entertainment, it is suffering. If you take ballet, if you take uh, opera, they're suffering. Fewer and fewer people are going to symphony halls. It's our job to keep it alive because these are the treasures of mankind. These are the, the great works of humanity. It's like going to a museum, going to Florence and seeing the great works, and here we perform them live, and that's what keeps them alive. So far, how many of these reclaimed, rediscovered works have you found? We found some 60 or 70 reclaimed works. There was one piece that was so fragile that uh, when I was turning the pages, I noted that the the head librarian was giving me the old evil eye. Because as I was turning the pages, the pages started to fray, And he came by quickly and he said, I'm sorry, we're going to have to remove this. We're not going to allow you to examine it any further. And it was sad because I was thinking, this is a good piece. How can you look at what for me would be lots of notes (laughs) in a complex pattern on a page and say, this is going to sound great? Experience, it's like if I were a great painter, then I would be able to recognize great artists. Conductors have inner hearing, just like we've all heard of the stories of Beethoven, who was deaf. And how in the world can you compose music when you're deaf? He was able to hear in his head the sounds. And so conductors look at a score, and we study a score in our office. And our job is to be able to hear notes leap off the page, not just the notes, but to be able to hear the instrument that's assigned to play them. Kevin Bartram, thank you for sharing your insights with me today and with good reason. Thank you very much, Sarah, and it's great to be with you. Kevin Bartram is director of Philharmonic Orchestra at the University of Mary Washington. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to With Good Reason. This is a 1927 recording by Bix Beiderbeck of I'm Coming, Virginia. Beiderbeck was one of the first great legends of jazz, known for his cornet playing, that had an unusual purity of tone and his gift for improvisation. One of his great admirers was Louis Armstrong. Brendan Wolfe is the author of Finding Bix, The Life and Afterlife of a Jazz Legend. He's also the editor of Encyclopedia Virginia at Virginia Humanities. Brendan, tell me about the musical genius of Bix Spiderbeck. When was he born? How did he live? Well, he didn't live long. He was born in 1903, and he died 28 years later. He was sick with the pneumonia and then drank himself to death, and... He was the the most innovative jazz soloist of the 1920s. He played the cornet. Yeah, it's a it's a smaller trumpet. It doesn't get as high or as loud as a trumpet. And so in jazz, a lot of cornet players switched to trumpet so that they could be louder and and sort of blast through the music. So where did he appear? In the march of jazz music, was jazz just beginning or just striking the public consciousness? Well, the first jazz recordings came in February of 1917. So Bix first started listening to those records the next year in 1918, and he made his own first records six years later in 1924. What does he consider the most famous for? For a song called Singing the Blues. It features a solo by his musical partner and friend, Frank Trumbauer, on C melody sax. And Frank just hands it off perfectly to Bix, and Bix just has this wonderful cornet solo. So let's take a listen. precise, so pure in his tone, and yet completely laid back and perfectly improvised. Who was he channeling when he was playing like that? He was influenced in lots of different ways, but I don't think he was channeling anybody. That's what makes him and Louis Armstrong at the same time originals. Nobody was doing that. Did Armstrong admire Big Spiderbeck? Did he even know who he was? Oh, yeah. They definitely were friends. They definitely admired each other's playing. Lewis wrote a couple of memoirs in which he praised Bix's playing, uh, but they didn't really influence each other in the way that you might think friends would because I think they were just fully formed musical styles right out of the gate. I'll play something else for you. It's way down yonder in New Orleans. It was recorded a few months after singing the blues. You get the same kind of 
long, laid back, but really pure and precise Bix solo. It's one of his longest solos. He scoots up to the highest note he ever recorded. It's just gorgeous. Was he improvising there or just sounding like he was? No, he was improvising. And and Bix and everyone who knew Bix always insisted that he never wanted to play those solos the same way twice. So how you have it on there, he never played it like that again. Let's try something else. So this is my favorite record of his. It's called Sorry. It was also recorded in 1927, and it is just propulsive from the word go. fell in love with a cornet when his older brother came home from the army with a Victrola? That's right. The records Bix's older brother got was from a band called the Original Dixieland Jazz Band. They were the first jazz band to record in 1917. And so Bix started listening to them the next year, at the end of World War I, and he just wore those records out listening to that jazz music, and he got himself a cornet and started learning the parts by ear. How do we know he played it over and over? He literally wore the record through, and that record still exists. You can see through it where he played it over and over and over again. Let's listen to one of the songs that Big Spiderback would have listened to incessantly. This one is called Livery Stable Blues. It's, it's a real it's a real novelty to me, you know. Lots of sound effects and lots of exaggerated tones, and it's it's really kind of silly, but it's also subversive for its day, you know. Definitely not the kind of thing that uh, a you know a middle class mom in Iowa wants her kid listening to. He ended up with a band out of Detroit called the Jingle Cat Orchestra. The Gene Goldkett Orchestra ended their tour in New York City, and they played at a, a venue called the Roseland Ballroom opposite an African-American band called the Fletcher Henderson Band, which was one of the very first big bands in jazz history. Louis Armstrong had played uh, with them early in his career. And at this point, they were seen as the hometown heroes and the real deals. And these white kids from the Midwest were going to play opposite them in a battle of the bands. And 
according to everyone who was there, including the members of the Fletcher Henderson band, uh, Gene Golquette, Bix and his buddies outplayed him. And it was a, a really big turning point in his career. So he is just beginning the ascent in his brilliant career when alcohol undoes him. Yeah. You know, prohibition, people are drinking a lot, but there's evidence that Bix drank a lot from, from very early on. And pretty soon, he was dead. He died in New York City. He died in New York City in the heat of August of 1931. But the musical world little noted his passing at the time, right? That's right. It was actually the first obituary of Bix Beiderbecke was written in French and not English. In your book, Finding Bix, The Life and Afterlife of a Jazz Legend, how did he get to be a legend? Well, Bix was the kind of guy that people like to tell stories about as a sort of myth and legend of a guy who came from nowhere, Reed, Iowa, and rose to the exalted heights of jazz stardom and then tragically, you know, his life was cut short and this sort of live fast, die young template has really stayed in American culture. So along comes the young you, and you are born also in Davenport, Iowa, and Davenport celebrates Bix Beiderbeck to this day. Bix is everywhere. Bix lives bumper stickers, Bix Beiderbeck t-shirts. Bix's face was on the side of a parking garage. It was on the name of a music festival. It was on the name of an elite road race. Tens of thousands of runners would come to Davenport every summer. Bix is like in the air. He's part of the culture. But I never heard his music. Like it, I didn't know I didn't know anything about what he sounded like. I didn't know anything about his life. What started your actual search to learn more about Bix himself and write this book, Finding Bix? I was editing a newspaper in Iowa City, and I wrote a sort of essay review of a book that had been re-released about Bix's life. And then a week or two later, got a letter in the mail the return address read Bix Beiderbeck. It's a letter from Bix's nephew, R. Bix Beiderbeck, Richard Bix Beiderbeck. And he was really mad at me. He was mad about my article. He said, I got all the facts wrong and all these things. I used the wrong sources and I really needed to read this other book about Bix. And I read it and I started reading everything else I could find. And I came to realize that the stuff that I had assumed to be true about Bix wasn't necessarily true, but even the stuff that his family was telling me was not necessarily definitely true. That, in fact, Bix was incredibly difficult to pin down, and that's what made him interesting to me. What did you learn about him, and what had you thought of him? I had bought into the legend. Bix, for me, was... A romantic figure. He was this kid who came from nowhere, who was a musical genius, who died young of alcohol, who was a pure artist. And those things aren't necessarily not true, but they also are 
projections of who we want Bix to be and who we need Bix to be. But Bix was also a real person. So do you hold with those that have called Bix the first important white jazz player? I think he was. Yeah, I think he was. But, but you know, I've tried not, not to get too mired down in the, the racial politics of it. I'm interested in the fact that when people are arguing about race and jazz, they're almost always arguing about Bix Beiderbecke. He's always right in the middle of it. Well, Brendan Wolf, finding Bix is fascinating. Thank you for talking with me and with good reason. Thanks, Sarah. Wolf is the author of Finding Bix, The Life and Afterlife of a Jazz Legend. He's also the editor of Encyclopedia Virginia at Virginia Humanities. You can read a chapter from his book on our website, withgoodreasonradio.org. Coming up next, The Mighty Ukulele. The humble ukulele, with its roots in Hawaii, is seeing a resurgence. Many of today's top musicians are using the ukulele in their recordings. My next guest is a master of all things ukulele. Jacqueline Sakoy is also a professor of music education at Longwood University and uses the instrument as a teaching tool for musical education. This instrument has so much to offer. It's versatile, it's affordable, you can hit every musical component that we want to teach. Plus, I loved the sound of it. I loved that you could sing very easily with it. So it just kind of grabbed me right away. What sort of piece might you have played for them just to show them what's possible? Yeah, the first thing we usually do or I do is we start with a bass line, which is just two strings. Row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Merrily, 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 life is but a dream. So they're singing and playing, and right away, in the first class, they get really excited about that. What are some of the group songs that you would have the whole class do together that they loved? Uh, We would do uh, You Are My Sunshine. You are my sunshine, my only sunshine. You make me happy when skies are gray. You'll never know, dear, how much I love you. Please don't take my sunshine away. Which is just very simple. Three chords. I understand that when you were hired for your new position teaching at Longwood University, part of your audition was to teach music using the ukulele to a class of college students, college music students. That's right. I brought in about eight ukuleles and getting them to experience the musicality of the instrument and their own musical capabilities, um, I felt was the most authentic experience that I could give them. What kinds of classes are you teaching at the college level using your ukulele? Okay, yeah, I'm teaching a class that is preparing future music teachers. Another one is a class for elementary teachers who are interested in incorporating music into their curriculum. 
to spice up their classes a little bit or engage their students in a different way. And so they're drawn to music or some of the students have had a musical background and they want to know how to use that in their classes. And I could see a whole set of teachers in one grade level maybe pitching in together to get somebody to fund ukuleles for an entire class at a time and rotate. I assume that the one you're showing me now, which is adorable, <laughs> um, is probably a lot pricier. Yeah, when when I bought it, I think it was around $150. From there, you can spend thousands on instruments and custom instruments. And we call it ukulele acquisition syndrome, where you get one, <laughs> and then you have to get a whole bunch more. So they're kind of collectible. When did the most recent ukulele craze begin, would you say? I'd say around in the 90s, actually, uh, 1990s. And now we're seeing it in all these kind of pop musicians. And so I'd say one of the people that kind of brought it to fame was Jake Shimabukuru, who is a virtuosic now ukulele player. He's from Hawaii. And he started playing when he was about three. And he played this video in Central Park of While My Guitar Gently Weeps. And it was a YouTube video, one of the first to go viral. And let me just play a little bit of that for you. That's gorgeous. Who knew you could do that on a ukulele? I think he really showed the level and the depth with which you can play the ukulele. I'm not sure I've heard anybody like that before him. And I think that's one of the reasons it's catching on and staying on this wave of ukulele popularity we're having now. People just seem to connect with it. They really are drawn to it. And it's it's not just kind of a comedy instrument. It's not just always light. It can have very rich, complex sounds to it. Why would you say it's not just a comedy instrument? Is it a comedy instrument? It has been used that way in the past. It's been used as sort of a light, happy-go-lucky instrument, which it is. But it's also now being shown in this sort of deeper musical way. But, you know, with people like Arthur Gottfried and Tiny Tim, um, Tiptoe Through the Tulips, everybody seems to know that one. It's very silly. And it was on a comedy show. So people kind of started to associate the ukulele with being funny or being silly. But now we're kind of seeing a different, more maybe mature side of the instrument. If one generation grew up associating the ukulele with Tiny Tim, mm -hmm. what do you think today's generation associates it with? The first thing that I think of is somebody I grew up loving, Pearl Jam. So they were considered an alt-rock band, but their lead singer, Eddie Vedder, has put out an entire CD of ukulele songs. And he has said how it's been a good songwriting tool for him and how it's very simple, has just a few strings on it, and that you have to really kind of dive a little bit deeper into the music to use it. Let's play one from his album, Ukulele Songs. This is kind of stripped down, just his voice, just the ukulele, and so it's very simple but very emotional.
did the ukulele come from? Well, it came from Hawaii, but it's an adaptation of an instrument called the machete from Portugal. And so the Portuguese brought it to Hawaii and the Hawaiians loved it. They thought it was a beautiful sound. And so they decided, well, we're going to adapt it a little bit. They used the wood that was native to Hawaii, koa wood. And the tuning that I have on my instrument is a little bit different than the one you would hear. has more of a dance quality to it. Um, this string, my low string, would be a high one on a Hawaiian tuning. So how did Americans come to fall in love with the ukulele originally? When did it come ashore? So in the early 1900s, around 1910, 1915, we had these world fairs happening. And we also had more travel between Hawaii and the mainland. And so they would bring it back as a souvenir for their family and begin to play it. And also we had Hawaiian groups traveling to world fairs and showing the ukulele and people were getting really excited about that and and adopting them into their own musical lives. And you're a strong advocate for using it in the classroom because it demonstrates so much about music. Absolutely. I've tried so many different instruments. That's kind of my thing. I play a lot of different things, but I'm always interested in what can I use that it's going to engage my students. And this seems to be the instrument that fits all the bills. Let me play one for you that I really love and that I think is a really good song for teaching to kids or adults, really anybody. It shows how you can sing or you can just play, and it can be a lot of fun. you to be my music teacher. (laughs) (laughs) That'd be great. I'd love that. Jacqueline Sequoy is a professor of music education at Longwood University. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods. Support also comes from the University of Virginia Health System, connecting doctors and patients through telemedicine to deliver high-quality care throughout Virginia, the U.S., and the world, uvahealth.com. Support also comes from Smithfield, a global food company committed to providing food in a responsible way so consumers can share meals and memories with family and friends, smithfieldfoods.com. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Elliot Majerzik, Kelly Libby, Cass Adair, and Allison Byrne. Jeannie Palin handles listener services, and our interns are Georgiana Reed and Emily Hayes. For the podcast, 
go to iTunes or to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.